Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21, which are found on page 978 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you again for being with us this morning and being a part of this uh, Child Dedication Sunday as we continue in our service now and are going to spend some time looking more closely at this passage. I'd love to just pray uh, for a moment and ask for the Spirit's help as we look into this uh, passage of Scripture. So let me pray now for us. Father in heaven, thank you that you have not only uh, given us your word, that you inspired the writers who wrote it down, but you've also preserved it and that you uh, have given people the ability and skill in, in copying manuscripts and translating, and that we can read these scriptures in our own language for all the people uh, and all of the work uh, that has gone into producing our English Bibles that we can just pick up and read. We're so grateful. Um, and we just ask now that your word would speak to us clearly, and that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever heard the, the comment or the maxim that hurt people hurt people? Have you heard that before? Hurt people hurt people? 
And I've certainly experienced that, uh, dealing uh, with people in, in my life where it's like, oh man, this person's really hurting, and sometimes they, out of that place of hurt, they will do things that are hurtful. Uh, and, but I also know that I have been on the other side of that as well, that when I'm not at my best, when I'm hurting, that I'm more uh, quick to maybe lash out with a harsh word to my spouse, to my kids, that hurt people hurt people. But I want to ask the question this morning, what if the opposite is also true? What if it's not only true that hurt people hurt people, but what if it is also true that loved people love people? That loved people love people. And that's what Paul tells us here in Ephesians chapter 5, that loved people love people. They, those who know they are dearly loved, are now free to love others in ways previously unimaginable. And so Paul actually writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it was the first thing we heard read this morning, that therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. You are beloved. That is your primary identity as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. If you have been united to him by faith, your identity is as a beloved child. And loved people love people. And, and I think of this picture of what does it mean to be someone's beloved? I, I think of 12 years ago, actually a little over 12 years ago, standing actually in our Leewood campus, watching my wife, Rachel, walk down the aisle at our wedding. And all of those feelings, the joy, the anticipation, the excitement, all that I felt for her in that moment, God feels about you. You are his beloved. I think of these parents who are just here uh, dedicating their children this morning, of how they think and feel about those children the, the moment that child was placed in their arms, the fierce love they felt, the commitment, the loyalty, the desire to protect and provide and nurture that little one. That's how God feels about you. You are his beloved but so much of the time, we don't really believe that's true. And yet we can only be the people of love we were created and rescued to be when we believe it. Henry Nouwen has a little book called The Life of the Beloved. And Nouwen is a really thoughtful writer, and he says this. He says, every time you feel hurt or offended or rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, as strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all eternity and held safe in an everlasting embrace. You are God's beloved. And so Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, as be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You are God's beloved, but what does it mean to walk in love? That's the question we want to answer this morning. What does it mean to walk in love as Christ loved us? And this is where it gets tricky because everybody loves the idea of love. I don't know anyone who's anti-love, but here's the challenge. God's definition of love is sometimes different than our definition. And actually in this passage, in those first two verses, God gives us his definition of love. 
He tells us to walk in love as Christ loved you. And then he adds this, and gave himself up for you. That God's definition of love is self-sacrifice, of action, of seeking the good always of the person or object loved to the point of sacrificing one's own life. But what if our culture has a different definition? What if we've normalized certain things and called them good, that they are so normal to us that we assume they're loving, but they're not? And the reality is that every culture and every time and place does this in different ways. So if you think back to the first century, the context in which Paul was originally writing this, in the first century, if you didn't want a baby, in particular if that baby was a girl, you could put it in the trash and you could literally take it out with the rest of the garbage. That was normal, acceptable human behavior. Uh, In the Middle Ages, if your people are going to war, you go to war, and all that goes along with that was, was celebrated. Murdering, raping, pillaging, everyone did it. It was considered normal human behavior. Think about our nation's own history, right? If you were wanting more farmland or more territory, and there were native people living in that land that you wanted, it was normal, acceptable human behavior to push those people out of that land, Or if you wanted cheap labor to work in your fields, there were slaves, and those things were considered normal by large swaths of people for a long time. Normal, acceptable human behavior. And I list all those examples just to point out that we can see with cultural distance and time distance how wrong those things, all those things I just talked about are. And yet at the time, they were considered just the way things were normal, acceptable human behavior. And that should cause us to pause and at least be open to the possibility that in our own cultural moment that there are things that are treated as normal, acceptable human behavior that different people from different times or cultures, maybe in the past, future, would look at and say, that's insane. How could you do that? To, to be open to the possibility that our culture hasn't arrived in every single way and doesn't get everything right maybe even as it defines love. And so in our passage today, Paul shows us that loved people love people, and he confronts our cultural definition of love in at least three ways here. And the first way that we see is that loved people love people more than their desires. That's the first thing we want to look at. Loved people love people more than their desires. In other words, love people don't confuse their desires with love or sex with love, and they don't let our desires define who we are. And if you were here last week, you know, we talked a little bit about this difference between our strong desires and our deep desires. Our strong desires that we have in any given moment may be for lust or greed or power or envy or anger. And as you go throughout your day, you might find a strong desire in a particular moment for any one of those things. But we also talked about the fact that our deep desires are typically different than our strong desires. Our deep desires are to be people of generosity and faithfulness and integrity and love and hope and sacrifice and compassion. But what set of desires in any given moment do we follow? Do we give into our strong desires in a particular moment or would we live continually out of our deep desires? And that's what, that's what we want is those deep desires. But culturally, our strong desires are often 
what rule the day, especially in our cultural context when it comes to sexuality. And God has some pretty strong things to say about it. I mean, we heard that whole passage read this morning, and, and I'm going to read a portion of it again. And I'm just going to say, fair warning, it's passages like the one we heard read this morning, especially taken out of context, that often cause people to hate the Bible because it seems so harsh. And, and I get that. And just as a side note, that's why at Christ Community we typically teach through whole books of the Bible, because I don't know that I would have just said, I want to read these verses and talk about them this morning. Like, if, it was just up to me picking, but we're going through this whole letter, and so we're going to preach what comes up next. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. But again, before I read these verses again, I just want to say this. Our first sort of obligation as readers of any text, the Bible or, or any text, is to first seek to understand it before we react to it. And so that's what we want to do this morning, is at least try to understand this passage and how it could be heard as good news to the people who are reading it in the first century. Okay, so with that, let me read these verses again. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, Paul says, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now again, the reason I've said all that to me, those are strong words. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthy talk, all these things Paul is saying are the opposite of love. Instead of building up a community, instead of enriching it, they actually tear it down. They bring death and decreation into that community. And so he says, don't do it. But what does he mean? Again, we're trying to seek to okay, at least first understand. What does he mean and why? Well, the Greek word for sexual immorality, that word that's translated sexual immorality in verse 3, is the Greek word porneia which may sound familiar, it's, it's a broad term for all sexual sins, a big category, which the God who made you, the God who calls you beloved, the God who gave his life for you, defines as any sexual practice outside of the context of marriage between one man and one woman for life. That anything outside of that design invites death and decreation. And so, porneia includes pornography, lust, hooking up, sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiancé, living together before you're married, adultery, same-sex sexual practice, all these things. And again, at this point, you may be like, should we just quit and just go to brunch at this point and just be done today? Because this is hard. This is, this is not easy stuff to talk about. Yet Jesus, the one who we, again, know calls us the beloved, who gave his life for us, calls these behaviors sin, which is the opposite of love. And, and the, the reality is, is it may feel like love. In fact, it may even be normalized in our cultural moment as just normal and right. But dragging someone with you into sort of a spiral of decreation is not love. It invites death. It destroys community. If people in your small group or your community group or your Bible study start sleeping together, it's not going to be great. 
If we come into the space looking at each other with a desire to exploit, in other words, with, with lust, that's going to cause problems. And, and even if you only do those things outside the context of this room, it's still going to affect the relationships in this room because it shapes us into a certain kind of person. And so Paul says, you've got to get away from this. You are beloved children, and you're in a new kind of family that lives in a different way. Loved people love people, and this isn't love. And again, I I recognize standing here this morning how ridiculous these words of Paul sound in our cultural moment that has normalized these things. And the context is like, love is love. And and so in this moment of our culture, we can just assume that what Paul is writing here is regressive and oppressive. Because of course, again, we have this mindset of our culture has arrived. What we believe in 21st century Kansas City is the pinnacle of progress. That we figured out the best way to live, and it's all great. And thankfully, we live also, and no one's ever exploited, no children are ever abused, no women are ever exploited, and everyone's happy, and no one ever gets divorced, and everything's just great. And we know that's not true. And listen, the sexual revolution has overpromised and underdelivered in massive ways, and in particular for women and children. But then you kind of come back and say, but yeah, isn't Paul, like, he's just wrapped up in his own cultural moment. Isn't he just reinforcing his old-fashioned cultural values of his culture on us? I mean, of course, then he's anti-sex. But actually, that's not true. Because again, going back to the first century, the Roman Empire, uh, the Greco-Roman culture into which Paul is writing these instructions, they were even more free sex than we are, at least if you were a male who was in power. Pedophilia was acceptable, prostitution, even rape in certain instances. This is all normal in the Roman Empire. And Tom Holland, who's not a Christian, points out in his book, Dominion, how the Christian revolution remade the world. He says, you know, he just notes this. If you were a man in the Roman Empire, especially if you had money, it was expected that you'd have a concubine, slaves, prostitutes, even a young boy or girl. And soldiers away at war would often take advantage of one another. And again, this was normal, acceptable human behavior in the first century. No one thought it was wrong. No one thought it was out of the ordinary. This is just what life was. Now, if you were a woman in the first century, you certainly could not do those things. And you were held to a very strict standard. And that's part of what's so revolutionary about what Paul is doing, is he is holding both men and women to the exact same sexual ethic in this passage. And that was unthinkable culturally in the first century. So sometimes we wrongly believe that Paul is down on women but the opposite is actually true, that Paul had the, the audacity in that culture to say, men, you actually have to live to the same and higher standard, that men and women both have to live by this standard. That was radical and offensive in their cultural context. A New Testament scholar, uh, Larry Hurtado, in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, also talks about this at length and how the Bible's sexual ethic was radically countercultural 2,000 years ago in the Greco-Roman world. Just as today, he says, Paul labels these behaviors as sinful and completely off-limits for believers. In doing so, I repeat, he asserted and reflected a stance diametrically opposed to the prevailing attitudes of the time, and he intended to distinguish sharply what should be the sexual behavior of believers, particularly for males. 
And Paul treats men and women equally when it comes to sexual ethics, confronting and offending his culture, just as he confronts and offends our culture today. And so if we want to call the Bible old-fashioned in its sexual ethic, it just means we haven't gone far back enough in history to what ethic are we comparing it to. Again, we tend to think of our view of sexuality as progressive, that we've shed these old-fashioned beliefs, but this is not true. We've actually regressed 2,000 years to the first century, a culture that permitted a sexual freedom and the gross exploitation of women and children. Our culture is going backwards to a more primitive sexual ethic, not toward a future sexual ethic that is more progressive. Uh, according to Rebecca McLaughlin, who's written a, a, an outstanding book um, called Confronting Christianity, if you have card questions about the plausibility of Christian faith in the 21st century, um, or you are wrestling with that in, in your own life or with a friend, um, Rebecca's book is one of the finest books out there for those kinds of questions. And she points out this, that the sexual revolution has not only underdelivered, it has disproportionately hurt women. She writes, is it possible that what women have gained in freedom and professional opportunity, and she highlights that's really, really good, may have lost in the sexual revolution that cloaked what many men wanted, commitment-free sex under the mantle of liberating women. And she describes an antagonistic, or uh, rather, an agnostic friend of hers who had once kind of lived what she calls like the, the, the sex in the city lifestyle, and this friend felt like she had to suit up an impregnable emotional armor to sustain the lifestyle and grieved later on in life that no one had told her sooner. She asked, why are girls not given this data in high school, she asked. We're going backwards, not forwards. And these behaviors invade the community of the beloved and the lives of the blood and the beloved and they hurt our ability to love one another, to be the kinds of people that we were created and redeemed to be. This is why pornography is not a victimless crime. Not only does it provide fuel for the human trafficking, feeding uh, an, an industry of modern-day slavery across the globe as well as here, it, it also shapes your brain. And there, there are studies that show this. It actually literally rewires the neuropathways in your brain so that you begin to view other people not as those beloved children for whom Jesus has given his life, but as objects for your own gratification and exploitation, which is not love. It reduces your capacity for intimacy and meaningful relationships and for joy. It's not a victimless crime. Not the least of which because it, it even hurts you, the user. And it can't happen here. And this overflows all of these things. They overflow from a lie of the enemy that actually says that we are not the beloved. Because all these practices actually, in so many ways, come out of a deep place of shame in our own lives where we're trying to cope with that and soothe that pain, that suffering. So listen to now and again. He says this. He says, aren't you like me, hoping that some person, thing, or event will come along to give you that final feeling of inner well-being you desire? Don't you often hope, may this book, idea, course, trip, job, country, or relationship fulfill my deepest desire? But as long as you are waiting for that mysterious moment, you will go on running helter-skelter, always anxious and restless, always lustful and angry, never fully satisfied. This is the way to spiritual exhaustion and burnout. 
This is the way to spiritual death. You see, God designed marriage and sexuality to show us how we are his beloved, to actually tell us the story of God's love for, his pursuit of his people, of us. And this is why sexuality and gender are such massively important in our lives and in our culture. And actually, as a church family, we're, gonna, we're committed to continue to grow in this, to be biblically faithful and compassionate and understanding in our views of sexuality and gender. And in a few weeks, on November 6th, we're going to bring in uh, Dr. Julia Sadusky, who's an expert in the area of, of gender identity, to have just that, a conversation on how do we remain biblically faithful but compassionate in an approach to gender. So I'd love for any of you to come and be a part of that time. It will be hosted at our Leewood campus, but it's for all campuses. Um, you, you need to sign up. There's no cost, but you can just sign up online. There's a banner actually at the bottom of every one of our, our homepage on the website. It's really easy to find. Just click on that, and you can come be a part of that conversation with us. Because here's the thing. God is committed to his people. Uh, he doesn't take. He gives. He doesn't exploit. He's not into one-night stands. He doesn't want multiple partners. He wants us, his people, that he calls later on in Ephesians chapter 5, his bride, his beloved. And when we mistreat or misuse God's gift of sex, we actually tell a lie about how God loves his people. And that's why Paul says these things shouldn't even be named among you. There shouldn't even be a hint of sexual sin because how could we, the bride, the beloved bride of God, tell lies about our husband. And that's what Paul is getting at here. We walk in love because we are beloved. And loved people love people more than our desires. So that's the first thing, that love people love people more than our desires. Here's the second thing, that love people love people more than hiding. Love people love people more than hiding. Now, hiding and secrecy, that, that's different from privacy. And in increasing ways in our own cultural context, and, and certainly in more authoritarian contexts in places like China or Iran, privacy concerns are very real. And, and honestly, a matter of human rights as people made in the image of God to have the dignity of, of freedom of expression and being able to have freedom of thought, that's really important. So privacy and, and secrecy or hiding are different things. But, you know, if I think about it, actually, too much, I freak out a little bit about how much those, you know, those so-called like fang stocks, the Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, how much those companies know about me, how they, they, they probably know us better even than we know ourselves, all the data that they have on us. Um, and probably one of those companies is going to take over the world someday. Um, I'm probably betting on Amazon on that one. Um, and actually, we have some Amazon dots, so they probably just heard that in here. Amazon, <laughs> sorry. Uh, I trust you with my privacy. I won't cancel my Prime membership. Uh, I can't do without it. And this is eventually going to go on YouTube, so then Google will know about it too. Um, <laughs> but hiding is something different than privacy, right? Hiding is the reaction of people who don't believe they are the beloved when they experience shame and guilt. Hiding is the reaction of people who experience shame and guilt and they don't believe that they are the beloved. 
When the voices of shame and guilt are louder in your life than the voice telling you that you are the beloved, hiding is the inevitable result. In fact, it's what the very first humans did when they first rebelled against God as they hide. Genesis chapter 3, I mean, this is as old as who we are as human beings. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid among the trees. And so the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? Now again, God in asking this question, where are you? He's not ignorant of their geographical location. But where are you in relationship to me? That question even is an invitation to them back to relationship. I'm still pursuing you. I still want you. Yes, you have rebelled against me. Yes, there's going to be all kinds of decreation that you have brought into the world because of that. But I want to know where are you? Come back to me. Come back to me. As God's beloved, we don't have to hide. Even in our guilt, even in our shame, we no longer hide in the dark. Instead, we walk in the light as the light. This is verse 8. For one time, you were darkness. Not just you were in darkness, but you actually were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Our identity now as beloved children is no longer darkness. We are actually light. Again, these are things that Paul is declaring are true of us. As beloved children, you are no longer darkness, but you are light. And here's the amazing truth of the gospel, that Jesus didn't wait for you to try to get the darkness out of your life and then have him come and rescue you. No, Paul's letter to the Romans tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That he loves you even before you ever show any interest in him. You are his beloved. And this means two things for us this morning. First of all, it means that we can allow the light to shine in our own dark places. Again, God knows those places anyway. You ultimately can't hide from him. He knows it all already. And he's saying, where are you? Where are you? Come to me. I want to shine light. I want to heal. I want to make whole. I want to forgive. He knows how, heart, how dark our hearts can be. How often we succumb to our strong desires rather than following our deepest desires. He knows. And he says, where are you? I want you back. I want you always. So first, we can shine the light in our own lives. Uh, second, we can also be light in other people's lives who are living in darkness. And obviously you do that in, in loving and respectful and tender ways. But when we see people that we care about who have been trapped by a strong desire, who you know aren't living out their deepest desires, who are bringing chaos and decreation into their own life. We can be a community that helps to shine light into one another's lives. And, and that sometimes is really difficult, and sometimes it's, it's hard, and it doesn't always go well, but even in those moments, we can know, even if that person rejects us, that we are still God's beloved. And when we allow others to see us, it feels incredibly vulnerable 
but we are already safe in God's love. And this can begin to free us from shame that keeps us running back to those dark places in, in the first place. Because here's the thing, shame often drives all of those destructive behaviors. Because shame is one of the worst, if not the worst, human emotions that we can feel. And we will do almost anything to stop feeling shame. So whatever the thing that you maybe struggle with, maybe it is pornography, maybe it's overeating, maybe it's drinking, whatever it might be, whenever you run to those things, you feel shame. But then the shame actually drives you to soothe the ache and the pain with those very things in this downward cycle of shame. We're, actually, we're shame addicts more than, than we're addicted to anything else. But the good news of the gospel is that you are already loved, even when you feel utterly ashamed. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He gave his life to erase that shame. And he says, come to me. Where are you? Where are you? And he can break the cycle of shame. Loved people love people more than their desires, love people, love people more than hiding, and finally, love people, love people enough to create a better community, to create a better community. Look at verse 15. Again, this is actually where I would have loved to start the scripture reading today. This is the, this is the encouraging stuff. Uh, I didn't want to start reading back in verse 3, but we did. Look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what is Paul talking about in these verses? What is he describing? What does it mean to walk around singing and speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? I didn't fully know the answer to this question, so I dug in a little bit deeper this week and was especially helped by Timothy Gombas' work in his book, The Drama of Ephesians. Because our tendency as people in the 21st century, in Western culture at least, is to read the Bible very individualistically, almost to read this letter as Paul's writing to me as an individual person. But he's writing this letter not to an individual, but to a whole community, a whole church family. These are plural commands. This is something we do together as a whole church family. And so he writes this. He says, this is what uh, Gamba says. Paul has the entire church in mind here, and he's contrasting two sorts of community performances. They are not to act like the surrounding communities in Asia Minor, getting drunk and behaving foolishly. In contrast to being just another worldly community that pursues ungodly behaviors, the church is to be filled by the Spirit with the presence of God, a reality that will become manifest through community habits and practices. So he's actually describing two different kinds of gatherings almost in this text. There's a kind of gathering that would happen in the ancient world, the worship of, of idols that involved all kinds of heavy drinking and ritual prostitution and all this kind of thing. He's saying your gathering as the church, as the body of Christ, is to look really different than that. It should be a, a community that's marked by love and self-sacrifice and, and mutual submission, putting the needs of one another above our own. Instead of being controlled with wine, we should be controlled by God's presence. Instead of filthy talk, we should encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual song. Instead of lust or covetousness, we should practice gratitude. And instead of taking advantage of one another, we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. One more 
quote from Nallon's book this morning. When our deepest truth is that we are beloved, are the beloved, and when our greatest joy and peace come fully from claiming that truth, it follows that this has to become visible and tangible in the ways that we eat and drink, talk and play, or talk and love, work and play. Now, friends, it is true. It is true that hurt people hurt people. And can I just say that this is a room that is full of hurting people? I, I don't know every one of your stories, but I can guarantee everyone in this room has been hurt at some point. And also, unless one of you happens to be Jesus, I know that everyone in this room has hurt someone at some point, right? This is a room full of hurt and hurting people. But because of the good news of the gospel, that is not all that is true of this room. Because this is a room full of people who God calls his beloved children. And his beloved children are able to love others, love people, love people. So how much are you loved? Well, we gave a few examples at the beginning, but the the ultimate measure of God's love for you is right behind me. It's the cross of Jesus, that he did not withhold even his very life from you, but gave himself up as a sacrifice, as a fragrant offering, that he wouldn't even let death or pain or suffering stop him from coming after you and redeeming you and rescuing you. And why? Why would the triune God of the universe go to such lengths to rescue and pursue and heal those who had rejected him and wanted nothing to do with him? Is it because he had to? No. John 3.16, for God so loved. In this way, God loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The heart of God is one of love and compassion and forgiveness, so much so that he sent his only Son, that he might bring you back to a relationship with him for his glory and his pleasure. He loved you. And now we are able, with the power of his spirit, to be the kind of community that loves one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray this morning, I pray this morning, that you would help us to grasp, as Paul prays, the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love that you have for us. Because so often the loudest voice in our lives is not the one that declares, you are my beloved. It's the one that says, you're no good. How could anyone know you and love you? How could anyone know you really and care about you? but that is the voice of an enemy who wants our death and destruction. Would we hear your voice more loudly, more clearly, more powerfully this morning that says, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. With you I am well pleased, for you I gave my life, for you I am remaking, for you I am setting free. We pray this in Jesus' name, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Amen.